Well, we are in the season of Lent, the 40 days between Ash Wednesday and Easter. Uh, This is the fourth Sunday of Lent, and during this time, we remember Jesus' road to the cross. We reflect on our own mortality, and um, as we reach Easter, we get to celebrate the gift of eternal life that we are given through Jesus' death on the cross. And each Sunday in this series, we have taken a look at how Jesus suffered um, as he journeyed closer to the cross, and more than just the physical things that he endured. We've seen how Jesus chose suffering. He chose to die to self. He was abandoned. We talked last week about how he was misunderstood. And today we're going to focus on how he was betrayed. So I'm going to read to you a couple of different small passages from Matthew 26. They're only about 20 verses apart. But what I want to show you today is how he was betrayed not once, but twice. So we're in Matthew chapter 6. You can follow along on the screen. The first passage starts on verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd, armed with swords and clubs, sent from chief priests, sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. And just a few verses later, starting in verse 69, Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway, where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, This fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you're one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the words Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. I'm curious if any of you have ever been betrayed. I'm guessing you have, at least once. So I want to take just a second and have you think back to that time. And I don't want to dwell on it, but I'm curious if you remember what it felt like. Maybe you felt shock or the loss of a relationship. Maybe self-doubt or anger. You see, the hardest thing about betrayal is that it doesn't come from people who we would say are our enemies. It comes from those people we love the most, that we trust the most, and that's why it's so incredibly painful. When I think about, when I reflect on what Jesus did for us on the cross, I often think about the physical pain that he endured, um, the horrific torture that he went through. And I think many of us would say that it's incredibly difficult to even watch a reenactment of Jesus' death, let alone imagine what it would have been like to be there or be the one who was going through that. But do we consider what else he was carrying on the cross that day besides the physical betray, betray, besides the physical pain? Because those betrayals that had happened that I read about 
happened within hours of his death. So did he even have time to feel those human emotions of anger and hurt? He was likely carrying those pieces to the cross with him, the emotional and the mental anguish of that. Sometimes when I deal with something like that, it takes me to my knees and I don't even necessarily have the physical pain going along with it, so I can't imagine. Not only was Jesus carrying the weight of sin of the entire world, he was carrying the sin that was very personally lashed out to him by two men that he called his brothers. And what I'm in complete awe of is how Jesus knew these betrayals were coming, both of them. He talked with both men ahead of time. And yet somehow it didn't change the way he felt about them and it didn't change the way he treated them. Imagine knowing that your friend or two of your friends are going to betray you in the worst way possible, not just through gossip or maybe making fun of you, which alone would be incredibly painful, but their betrayal is going to lead to your death. And yet Jesus invited Judas to do what he came for, and he even called him friend. In the, in the world, we, we live in a fallen world, but in an unfallen, perfect world, we wouldn't hurt others and we wouldn't be hurt by those closest to us, but we are, and he was. And he handled it in the most beautiful, most loving way possible. He went to the cross. He took it, he bore it, he suffered it, because he loves us, and he loved them. How did he do even that so perfectly? The betrayals had to happen for the resurrection to happen. It was part of the process, it was part of God's plan. And these two men weren't the only people to betray Jesus. We have all betrayed him at some point. And I think it can be really easy to sit in judgment of Peter and Judas, but do we consider all the ways that we let Jesus down? And how do we make that right? One of these two men went down in history as a villain, and the other went on to become a hero for the faith. So what was the difference? It was repentance. Peter repented. So as we consider that, as we think through that, I'm going to pray, um, and I'm going to start by just praying a couple of verses from Psalm 51 over us. This is a prayer of repentance. So would you bow your heads and pray with me? Have mercy on us, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out our transgressions. Wash away all our iniquity and cleanse us from our sin. Jesus, thank you for the pain that you took for us. The emotional, the mental, and the physical that you took on so selflessly. Jesus, we come before you this morning so very thankful and so in awe of who you are and what you've done. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Aubrey. Uh, I told a story last fall. I will tell a little bit of it again um, now. And it's that in my time early on in, at Celebrate Church, a couple asked if I would do their wedding, asked to meet with me. They didn't go to Celebrate Church. They didn't go to any church. Um, and when we sat down to meet in my office, they said, I, I have two questions. we have two questions for you. 
The first question is, do you do weddings when people are living together? I said, well, I assume that you're asking that question because you're living together. And I assume that, I said, you know, that's, it's not just about living together. I assume you're also sleeping together. And you know, oh, they realized that we're having a real conversation, you know, right when I said that. And I said, you know, you, you don't go to, as from what I know now, you don't go to a church anywhere. And so I don't expect you to go by church rules. If you want me to do your wedding to bring the blessing of God on you and do the you know, justice of the peace, make this legal. You know, I'm willing to do that under a couple conditions. One, I'd like to talk with you about Jesus um, as we get ready for your wedding. And two, I'd like to talk about, I'd like to, well, I'd like to talk with you and I'd like to talk about Jesus at your wedding in a way that's fitting for you. I'm not going to get all preachy, but just in a way that's fitting based on our conversations. And then number two, just as long as nothing is dishonoring to God in the wedding ceremony itself, I'll go ahead and do the, the wedding. I said, okay, good. I said, okay, um, I said, what's your other question? They said, well, the second question is, would you marry two gay people? I said, well, you know, I, I realize that it's kind of hypocritical that I would do one and not the other. I, you know, I, I don't want to be judgmental, and I, I'm kind of apologizing all over myself, and at the end I say, um, but just I, I can't. I couldn't do that. I don't think that's a, a, a marriage in the Bible, so I just couldn't do it. I said, Good. And I wasn't ready for good. I thought they were coming at this from a different angle. And so I, I, I kind of got thrown off. And later, I circled back around to have the conversation with them. Because on one hand, they wanted me to set aside what the Bible would say about the right way to live for them. But they also did not want me to set it aside for other people. So I told that story. And I don't remember. A few weeks later, I um, was having lunch with uh, a gay man who, who's going to celebrate. And... Um, he told me how hurtful that story was, how angry he was with me when he heard me tell that story. Now, he knows where I um, come from, and we're going to talk about this next week in terms of same-sex marriage. He knows that, and um, yet he still comes because he also knows my, my heart. We've, we've had conversation. I've listened with curiosity. Um, we're, we're friends, he, he prays for me, I pray for him. Um, but that I would go ahead and just say, well, I'm not going to apply the Bible over here in this situation, but I am for people who are gay, just is really hurtful to him. And he is not alone. Studies have shown that less than 10% of people in the LGBT plus community would, be, would say, I won't go to church because they believe like same-sex marriage is wrong, because of those beliefs, they hold those beliefs. Most would still come. But of, there are other um, factors, but one of the main things that would keep a huge percentage of them coming is when we do not apply Scripture consistently. When we say to LGBTQ plus people, this but we say to straight people, this. I had, we had a, um, a young woman who, who was coming to our church before COVID, and she had led worship at her church even as a, a teenager, gifted, um, was, was interested in what would it be like to, to lead worship up here. And she asked different questions about uh, my perspective, our perspective on 
on Celebrate Church and leadership and things like that. And she, so she knew that we would not allow like someone in a gay marriage to, to lead up here. And she said, well, then I, I'm not going to lead. And I said, okay, I, like, you know that. We've had that conversation. She said, yeah, but I'm divorced and remarried. And I know what the Bible says about divorce. And so I'm not going to go up there and lead if you're going to have one standard here and one standard there. And I didn't quite understand that at the time, but it was getting at what my other friend was talking about. She did not want that inconsistency. Now I'm going to talk more about one or both of them and their perspectives next week when we talk about uh, same-sex attraction and marriage and all of that. But I just put that out there as some framework as we look at these things. We're going to talk about issues that are, are focused on straight people today and just where we're at in our attitudes on that. So going back to the passage that we have used to kind of set the stage to help us understand what is God's ideal for our sexuality and for marriage and how we live that out, uh, we're going to read... Matthew 19, verses 3 through 6, and hear what Jesus says. Some Pharisees came to Jesus to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, Jesus replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So Jesus quotes Genesis chapter 1, talking about how the creator made them male and female, that our gender is based, we talked about last week, on how we're created, what the creator says who we are. Now, there's a lot more nuance to that, so that would, if you didn't listen, that would have to be, you'd have to go back and listen to last week. But then also that um, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become flesh, a man and a woman, come together, and the two become one flesh, and then he repeats it, two becoming one flesh. And what we know from how this developed, you know, after Genesis 1-2, how it was lived out in the Jewish community and the Christian community, and it's been lived out since, the two becoming one flesh was a, a lifelong covenant, a lifelong commitment to live together. That was what Jesus quoted, but then also reinforced. I mean, he, we don't have a lot of what he says, but what he does say is he reinforces two becoming one flesh. So this means two people coming to share one life and making an agreement that they are going to stay together in one life until one of them dies. That that is the approach. They leave their family. Now, they still can love their family, honor their families, each of them, but their primary, primary loyalty is to each other. And sometimes, because the loyalty is still to one family or the influence and control is still coming from another family, that starts to create lots of issues. They leave and cleave. This is the primary thing. The two becoming one flesh. And then covenant was a big deal. A covenant was a legal commitment and it was a relational, meant to be a relational and intimate commitment. That if violated was, when you made a covenant, you said, if I violate this covenant, then God can do this to me. Like, I, I, I want that. Like, I'm calling for that. Because it's that important. 
So Jesus says that's the ideal. Now, Jill, if we can go back to verse 3 for a second before we go on. Some Pharisees came to Jesus to test him. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? How are they testing him in this? Well, at the time, there's a big debate about when is it okay to divorce. And some, there's some that are listing it out, like it can be for this or that, it can, but not for this. You know, if, they, if she cooks it and burns it and does this, I mean, literally, then that would be a good enough reason. But if this, this, then not a reason. I mean, they had some of them all spelled out, and there's a big debate about how much latitude a man had to divorce his wife to get the certificate of divorce. So verse 7, after Jesus has replied... They come back. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So, in Deuteronomy, there's what, there's what they're referring to in the Old Testament of our Bible, the book of Deuteronomy, where there's this instruction about a certificate of divorce. The intent of the certificate of divorce was to protect a woman. Because if a, if a man just divorced a woman, it's not like she could just go get another job, go get another... And if she was found with another man, after people knew she was married, she could be stoned to death. So a certificate of divorce was a way to say... She, it's okay for her to remarry. It's okay for her to, I mean, even be a prostitute. I mean, it was, this is very, not, but this is like, this is to protect the woman. But now speed up to Jesus' time, and they're using that same thing to say, hey, this is my free ticket to divorce a wife and move on to someone else. And their whole debate is over trying to figure out how do we justify, what is justifiable, rational, so I can move on. And it was getting to the point where it was just like, like I said, like cooking, like there are things about like anything to move on. So Jesus says, the intent from the beginning is to stay married. Not to be fixated and looking at for all the reasons you can get divorced. Your reasons for getting divorced because your heart is hard. So, let me, I want to make a couple other comments, but let me read one other passage of how Jesus talks about divorce in Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 through 32. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, this passage has been confusing. This translation is, is pretty helpful. If, if you read it literally, it would say, causes her to be an adulteress. And then that gets confusing as to what exactly does this mean. So this is helpful. Um, I, there's a paraphrase that I got. This is actually from Bill Galtier that I heard him read this week of this passage. And I think it's helpful for us in figuring out how this context, because we don't live in the same context. We don't live in this context where, where women were so vulnerable with divorce and men were um, using things to, to just unload them. But there's still what, what Jesus is saying, the spirit of it can still apply to us all. You have heard it said by your teachers, if you divorce your spouse, do it legally. But I tell you, look at the heart of the matter. 
Anyone who divorces a spouse for any reason other than marital unfaithfulness injures their spouse and makes her a victim of adultery. Divorcing a spouse in a legal way just because you're not happy in your marriage or because you want to marry someone else is following a law but failing to love. I want to read that again. Divorcing a spouse in a legal way just because you're not happy in your marriage or because you want to marry someone else is following a law but failing to love. That's getting to the heart of the matter. And so now, what I want to say is, if we're talking about how Jesus talked about marriage and divorce, we see that he's getting at the heart of the matter. And it's important to do that because since that time, the church has often done the exact opposite. And we've taken a real narrow, kind of rigid look at these passages to justify things that are unhelpful. So, for instance, if, if a person is in abusive relationship, but the person hasn't committed adultery, it doesn't mean the Bible says, well, that's not good enough. No. If a person is in an abusive relationship, you need to get out and get help. That, that, is, that is what needs to happen. It must happen, and I would say with confidence that's what Jesus would say. He was basically talking about abusive relationships when he was saying all of this. Another thing I would say is that staying married does not cover up all kinds of other sin within the marriage. So I had a couple in my office multiple meetings or multiple times. And what was coming out is that the guy wasn't even living with the spouse anymore. He was doing all sorts of other things, but he knew, she knew this passage. And he wouldn't get the divorce. So he put it on her, and he knew she wouldn't divorce him. And she's just like, I know it's wrong. I don't want to do it. And so... At some point, what I had to say, what I, I didn't have to say, but what I said was, he has already divorced you in spirit. He's not living like you're married. He's not living with you. He's spending more time with other women than you. So don't feel beat down and locked into this verse. He's going to have to choose in too. And we tried to work with him to choose in, but he just wouldn't. So I think that getting at the heart of the matter would say it's okay if someone has in spirit divorced you to meet that person where they're at and just follow through in how they're living. Let me read one more passage from Mike Malachi. This is from the Old Testament. Getting at Lord... Uh, the Lord's perspective on divorce. Another thing you do, now just let me, before I go on, just to pause, since it's picking up somewhere by saying another thing that you do, what the prophet says right before this is that you're, you're marrying people who serve other gods. So the Bible talks about do not be unequally yoked. While you still have a choice, if you are following the Lord and that's your desire, then you should marry someone who's following the Lord. When you follow the Lord, 
but marry someone or with someone who's not, it does not, it's more likely that you will come this way than that you will bring them up. It's more likely that you will be unable to follow the Lord. So anyway, another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears, you weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her. Though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Just, I just want to stop. So a covenant, I want to say this one more time because we don't really think about covenants. But if you had a legal contractual agreement with someone, then what you're doing, I'm not talking about marriage, I'm just talking about we're, we're making a legal contract, and I am signing this to say that if I break this agreement, there can be consequences. There will be consequences. And the agreement helps reinforce that those consequences are going to happen. Now, when a covenant is meant to be an expression of love for one another, but part of it also is that, okay, there's a legal agreement, I guess, in the state of Iowa in, in a marriage, but there's also a spiritual agreement. And when you and I say before, not you and I, just Camille and I, I guess, when a person says before God, you know, I am making this agreement and I'm taking this vow before you, there is a way that it's saying, and so if this agreement is broken, it's not just a legal impact, there is a spiritual impact, an emotional impact of breaking it. And we're vowing before God, yes. The consequences of breaking that, yes. Because we want to keep this. So the bigger the deal in the contract, the bigger the consequences. Marriage is a big deal, spiritually, relationally, emotionally. Has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. People who resemble him. Children who resemble him. That he's adopting. Who take covenant seriously like he does. Who are loving like he is. That's what he longs for. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. And a number of translations, including a footnote in the NIV translation I just read, says, I hate, this translates this passage, I hate divorce, says the Lord. Now he does not say, it does not say, I hate divorced people. It doesn't say that. It says, I hate divorce. You know what? So do I. So do I. Because it's so painful for the people going through it, for the people most connected. It is painful. I think in, in divorces, there is usually a combination of hard-heartedness and brokenheartedness. And sometimes the hard-heartedness is so with one person. There's so much callousness, so much disregard. They just leave the family. Or they just, it, that there is, 
Not so much brokenheartedness in this. It's just hard-heartedness, and it leaves a trail of brokenheartedness with others. But I think a lot of times it's a combo. There's some hard-heartedness, and there's brokenheartedness in people who, who get divorced. But the ramifications for children is quite painful. It's real. And we don't like to talk about it. I don't like to talk about it because I don't want to make anybody feel worse than they already feel when they're getting a divorce. But I think the studies are pretty common. I don't think there's a lot of exceptions to the idea that, that uh, children, there's negative ramifications for children who get divorced, whose parents get divorced. And one of those is that um, they have more difficulty making long-term commitments and intimate attachments that's, that's just what the studies show. It's more difficult. Now, it does not mean that's just automatic. No, it does not mean that's just automatic. But it is something to overcome. I talked to someone this morning who said, I think that the, my parents' divorce shaped me in a, in a not good way more than anything else. It was part of my identity. It had all kinds of ramifications. I've had to work <clears throat> through it for a long time. There is just a way that that's real. And sometimes I observe that parents who already feel so bad and guilty have trouble dealing with the consequences on their kids, so they need the kids to feel okay about it. Like, just there's an unintentional pressure for the kids to feel okay about everything and not really let the kid process, because they can't handle it. Well, that just layers a whole lot more on, on a kid. Now, I don't see this so much now, but re, you know, maybe a few couple decades ago, there's a way in which the church can kind of send signals that you know, church is for and God is for people who are married, they got two and a half kids and a dog, and they, you know, that's the like that's the way that you really get the blessing and favor. And otherwise, you're kind of like a second-class citizen. Well, if that's the case, then Abraham is a second-class citizen. He had all kinds of issues with his wife and spouse. Then Jacob or Israel, the, the father of the children of Israel, like the whole rest of the Old Testament, how we're identified as Israel, then he's a second-class citizen. Then King David, the man after God's own heart, is a second-class citizen. Like, God, God is with us and works with us. We're all broken people. So, so he is here with us. What I'm trying to do to say is like, what is his heart and what is his intent so we can lean toward that from where we're at right now? From where we're at right now. But we're just a bunch of blended and broken and it's all there. And that's okay. God loves us all. I'm going to come back to this later, but I need to get to the second challenge. So... Back to what Jesus was talking to um, the Pharisees. And he said, you know, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual morality and marries another woman commits adultery. The response of his disciples, then disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. And I said this a couple weeks ago when we read it. I would never have thought in my head, Jesus is going to talk about marriage and what it is, and the response of the people who follow him is, maybe we shouldn't get married. 
And that's just not where I, what I saw coming, but that is what he said. That's what they said. They were like, wow, because marriage and divorce are such a big deal. Their response is it might be better not to get married. Now, here's, I think that's still true. I think that after two generations are now coming of age who a huge percentage of their parents were divorced, what is true now is maybe it's better not to marry. But, but, the disciples were saying, maybe it's better not to marry. Maybe it's better not to be one flesh, bring two lives together for a lifelong commitment because it might break. Maybe it's better not to come together the sexual becoming of one flesh, which comes underneath this agreement, this commitment. Maybe it's better not to do that. I, feel, I think our culture is saying, no, we'll still try to come together and do one flesh living. We'll still come together one flesh and have sex, but we're just not going to get married. We're just not going to make the covenant or the commitment. Because it's a joke. I mean, for some, it's just a joke. Or for some, it's just unconscious. We don't even realize it. But there's, we do not want to do that. And so the solution is we will live together to the point where that is just very normative. Very normative. More likely than not that you're going to be living together before you get married. Whether you're a Christian or not. So... Uh, where am I at? My okay. Let me. So let me just read some things that I get. This is John Mark Comer summarized different studies and books he read to make three points. He made more points than this, and he would really, based on what he's like, be upset that someone would just quote these because he's a very gracious man. But anyway, those who cohabitate before marriage are less likely to marry. That's true. Those who cohabitate before marriage are less likely to marry. More than half of people who cohabitate, who live together as couples but aren't married, it lasts less than a year. Somewhere around 10% make it past five years in cohabitating. Those who cohabitate before marriage and do get married are more likely to get divorced. This has been consistently true as, far, as long as I can remember, as long as I've been an adult. That, so sometimes it's that well, marriage is like the step you take to get you, or living together is the step you take to get ready to get married. But it doesn't actually help, at least statistically speaking. Those who cohabitate before marriage often develop long-term trust issues. So I was doing a wedding for a couple a long time ago before I was working here, and she was obsessed with his interaction with any other woman to the point that he was getting frustrated and he even just started doing it intentionally. He started like to trap her into being obsessed and spying on him and things like that. So they're asking me what to do. I'm going to do their wedding in about a month. And I said, well, you know, they're living together and you're going to church and everything. Good, good folks. I said, well, I got an idea. How about don't have sex? until you get married. For the rest of the, you know, whatever, the month. It was just like a written, oh, I don't know, I can't. I said, well, here's why. Like, you don't trust that he would be unwilling to go down this path with another woman. He can demonstrate to you 
that he can restrain himself by showing this for the next month. He doesn't need sex to stay with you and be with you. And then you don't have to give him sex out of a place of anxiety or fear that if you don't, he'll leave you. Because that could set up a pretty unhealthy thing in your relationship. They nodded. I'm pretty sure they didn't follow through with what I was saying. (laughs) So here are reasons I hear. Well, uh, the first two are just based on studies. The most common reasons for living together, but but not getting married, uh, at least right away. Financial. That is the number one. Financial. It just makes more sense. It's, you know, financial. Reason for living together, number two, convenience. And I'm reminded of uh, last fall, Camille and I co-taught, and she talked about uh, the definition of love as a willingness to be inconvenienced. So if you're going to practice for being married for the long haul, one of the ways to do it is to allow inconvenience instead of avoid inconvenience. Anyway, reason for living together. Now, this is just one that I used to hear more. I don't feel like I've heard it as much lately. Just not ready for marriage yet. Like, again, there's like, I need to take this, felt like the right step first. But again, just studies have shown it's not actually the better step. It's not actually a helpful step or a helpful practice. And then... This is the one I have heard the most in the last few years. Reason for living together, trouble finding a venue for a wedding. (laughs) Honestly, I mean, I hear that a lot. I hear that a lot, which I think gets into financial inconvenience, maybe, but also just gets into like, so what's important? You know, the marriage or the wedding? And I don't mean to say it. I mean, just as an aside, like, Going into this series, now you think about what I'm talking about this series, like sexual immorality, trans, LGB. I mean, I'm, this is the Sunday I've been dreading the most. Because I'm not, a, I'm not judging people who are living together. I mean, if you've been around me, I, there's all kinds of people who are living together, and that's not my heart at all. But, but here's, what I, here's why I feel like I want to speak pretty firmly about what the Bible advocates. Let me just tell another story. So I'm, a young man asked to meet with me. He grew up in the church. He wasn't going to church at the time about some issues, some problems. So we're just talking life. And as we're talking, I sense some safety, some comfortability. So I just say, you know, I know some things about a situation. I say, so you, you're a Christian. You consider yourself a Christian based on what you say? Oh yeah, I'm a Christian. Okay. I know, I know I don't I haven't been to church and I don't go to church as much. I, I, yeah, no biggie. That, like that's when you're a pastor, like that's literally like how people feel like <laughs> like I'm some sort of attendance taker or whatever. And that yeah. Anyway. Uh, I said, Well, so you're living with your girlfriend. I'm just curious how you came to the conclusion that it's best to live with your girlfriend based on I mean, I'm not sure that that's what, the, what, what Jesus would encourage. I'm just curious how you came to the conclusion. And I just look at me like, I've never thought about that. That is common. Never even considered 
Christian people never even considered that we wouldn't just live together. That we wouldn't just become one flesh, do the one flesh thing without the commitment first. One person in our church told me, I have learned my lesson. I'm never going to live with a person again until before marriage. And I'm never sharing a cell phone plan again with a person before marriage. (laughs) (laughs) I've learned. Learned. That's good. (laughs) I love that. But really, Jesus puts out the best way is to wait. Can I have you think about... I'll start, then I'll start moving toward Ned. Have you think about um, this? That in the Bible, many marriages were arranged by parents. It's not to say that the Bible says that parents, that that's the way marriage should work, that parents arrange it. Much as Camille and I would like to get all these things settled for our kids someday. But... What it does mean is the Bible is not say that marriage is based on if you're in love with somebody or not. What the Bible says is marriage is a lifelong commitment of two people coming together and agreeing, we're going to do life together. And it's the place we're going to learn how to love. Because we can't go anywhere else. We're in it together. So we have to learn how to love each other. Now, sometimes one person won't agree to learn how or try how. I get that. But just in theory, marriage is based on learning how to love one another. Going to the... I'm going to skip that. Let's just... I'll skip the Ephesians passages, uh, Jill, and we'll just... Start setting up an end. So the ideal is a lifelong covenant. A lifelong commitment. That is a place where we can learn to love each other. It's really hard. It's really hard. Especially, we just, we bring our brokenness in. So it's really hard. But the challenges are to either start your relationship before the commitment or to be in, have made the commitment and break it. And it's really hard. So what is Jesus' response? I'm thinking about Judas and, and Peter as Aubrey shared. And Judas, Judas betrayed Jesus for financial it's another thing about using finances as the reason to not get married yet, but to, to start before the commitment. It's just the Bible. I mean, I had passages that I didn't read lined up, and it is how it talks about sexual immorality and greed right with each other. Like, those two things can really cause us problems when we, we let them go. So, Judas, one of the things was money. We know he was greedy. The Bible says it explicitly. Another thing that seems to be the case, because he was pretty quick to throw the money back and say he had made a mistake. So what was the other? What, what people think might be true is that 
Judas was trying to force Jesus' hand because he wanted a Messiah that conquers Rome. He wanted a Messiah, and he, it wasn't happening. And so by putting him in opposition, now Jesus is kind of forced to finally he, he, be the Messiah. Or maybe Judas was just disappointed because that's the kind of Messiah he wanted, and, and Jesus wasn't doing it. And so he was willing to betray him. Either way, and when I think about divorce, and I think about money, and how that can cause us to betray Jesus and what he says would be best. Or, in our marriages, thinking about, well, I wanted the person to look like this. I thought they would look like this, and they don't. Now, Peter, he denies Jesus. He betrays Jesus because he's afraid. He's afraid of what the people think. He's afraid of what will happen to him. And so he's willing to betray Jesus because of that. And those are reasons that we betray Jesus, that I betray Jesus, that I hurt others. So what is Jesus' response? You want to bring up that uh, Matthew passage, because I don't have it marked. Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. In the... There's times where you kind of sense betrayals going on, you're wondering if betrayals going on and all of that, but then there can be a moment where it's real. Like, yes, betrayal. Like you feel the dread feeling, which can either lead to deep sadness or huge anger. Usually it's big swings between the both. And in the moment where it became real, Jesus says, So when we betray him, when we betray others that we were supposed to be there for, we need to recognize that Jesus' response is not. His response to people who betray him, betray others, is friend. Friend. I'll still call you friend. There's still time to come to me. Friend. What is our response to this? I know there's a lot of things I put out there. But I think one of our responses can be coming to Jesus as a friend. Knowing that Jesus is a friend. So the worship team can come up because we're, we're in a few moments going to go into our closing time. One of the things that I... Uh, have learned in praying. So this is how I, I was very clear. It was very clear when I grew up how I was taught to pray. You fold your hands, you close your eyes. Right here. But uh, as Michael Motes mentioned, uh, I think in, when he taught last fall, um, it seems pretty clear that the psalmist and Jesus prayed with their eyes open outside. It just seems pretty clear. So this doesn't have to be our only posture. I mean, it's not a totally bad posture. Probably a good posture for kids. It keeps them quiet and lying. You know, see, that's probably why I learned it in Sunday school. But here's a new way I'm learning, have learned over the last few years to pray, and that's just to put another chair for my friend Jesus. Now, Jesus is more than friend. He's God most high. He's Lord. You know, there's, he's, he is huge. But he also says... He calls me friend, and I can call him friend. 
And so I can just talk to him like a friend. And I can bring my situation to him as a friend. So there's been something where I've felt stuck for months, for sure. A particular situation. And this last week, I had some time, so I'm really going to work on this situation. When I feel stuck or when I feel a problem, what I'll do sometimes is, because I've been in my head, 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 and, so, and I throw up prayers when I'm in my head, is I put Jesus here, and I put the problem or issue here. And we look at it together. And I just talk to him like he's in the room, because he is in the room. I talk to him like, because he cares about the situation, because he does care about the situation. And I was just telling him, like, you know, because this is why, and this is why I'm stuck, and this is why this is stuck, and this is what I've tried, and it hasn't worked, and this is what's stuck. And I get nothing. I mean, I've been praying this for months. I was sitting there. And he just said, I, I, I think I kind of gave it like, I'm not getting anything from you, and it's totally, and it's just stuck. And he said, I just felt like, he, when he said, no audible voice, just like a thought goes through my head that felt like it was coming from outside me. I don't see it that way. Oh. Jesus doesn't see it that way. How do you see it, Jesus? He didn't tell me right away. Everything changed because it was just something that was wrong that I needed to fix. Was it wrong with me or was it wrong? And then I realized like, oh, Jesus sees it another way and there was something hopeful about that. I say that because as we think about if we're single, if we're divorced, if we're married, we're making decisions, there's a way in which we can just feel so alone in it, so alone or so guilty so ashamed and we can bring that to Jesus and he might not see it that way so we're going to pray a little bit recognizing that Jesus is in the room sitting by you too let's just pray for a little bit and we'll see where this takes us come Lord Jesus Come, Lord Jesus. Hmm. Hmm. I think that Jesus might be saying to some of you this morning, I am not ashamed. I am not ashamed of you. Not at all. There's a smile on his face, but also a tenderness in his eyes. He is not ashamed of you. I think there might be some in this room who are angry with a parent or both parents. I think Jesus might be saying, I understand. I understand. I understand why you're angry. I'm here with you in that. 
my sense is that Jesus, there's some thoughts going through your mind that are from Jesus for some throughout this room. So we can just take a few more minutes before we, a few more moments before we go into our last song. But just lean in, lean in to Jesus whispering to you or just to Jesus sitting with you where you're at, what you're feeling. Thank you, God. Thank you for your treasures of grace. We bring a lot of brokenness with us this morning and just pray that everything that's in the past, that's behind us, we just pray for your mercy to wash over it again, wash over it afresh for things that make us sad or angry or ashamed. Cleanse us again. And we also pray that we could walk forward with you as our friend and trust you. Trust that you have our best in mind. Thank you that you have our best in mind, that we can leave behind what's in the past and we can move forward with you. What can we do moving forward? We want to walk with you. In your name we pray. Amen. I want to invite the prayer ministers and the elders serving communion to come forward and get into their places. Um, we'll have both available afterwards. Camille was mentioning to me, reminding me of something that we've talked about and learned um, during the last song, and that is that in our woundedness, when we bring that woundedness to Jesus, uh, they, be, they can become sacred wounds where he meets us there. And then we can become wounded healers. We can become people that in our brokenness and how we've been hurt or how we may have hurt others, uh, God actually uses us to help and heal and bless others. So what we don't want to do is, is leave today just feeling bad about things. We can come have communion, meet Jesus here, ask him to meet us here. We can come with the hope knowing that he can take even our mistakes, even our brokenness, and bring about good in them when we bring them to him. So I encourage you to do that uh, this morning in, in some way. Whenever you go, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and always. Amen.